Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I've heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing of the key, to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. 
They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. And the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written, and this is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, tikul ufarsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mine. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tikul. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we come again before you, beseeching you that you would make known to us the mysteries of your word, even, Lord, as those with whom there was no spirit of the living God within them could neither know nor understand the word that you granted that very night, Lord, so it is with us. And we pray that you would make known to us this word and its meaning to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come to Daniel chapter 5 tonight. This is, of course, the story of the writing on the wall. And just for a brief introduction to it, so we see how this connects up with the previous things, many years have passed since the last chapter, since chapter 4. The great king Nebuchadnezzar is is dead. His lesser son, uh, Nabonidus, has other interests beyond the kingdom, mainly actually in pagan religion. And he, for a long time, has... Uh, went away in order to study this religion and to make progress in it, such as it was, and ironically. And for many years has left his son Belshazzar in charge. However, the Medes and Persians are making use of this weakness in the Babylonian Empire. And after defeating the Babylonian army in the field, this great army is now besieging the city Now, Belshazzar thinks he's safe because this city of Babylon is on the river Euphrates and it forms a natural moat, a mighty moat, an impenetrable barrier, at least so it seems, around the city. Of course, he has plenty of water and to add to it, they've stockpiled roughly 20 years worth of food in the city. So he has nothing to worry about. He thinks the danger will eventually pass, they'll all go home and they will be safe. But he did not realize that disaster was looming. And in his pride and in his foolishness, he throws this lavish feast for his lords. 
Now, not only was he courting disaster in terms of his life here, of course, he was courting disaster spiritually and eternally. Because what was wrong with that party was not merely irresponsibility, not merely drunken revelry, which had been bad enough. It was blasphemy. For reasons unknown, he chose that night also to blaspheme the one true and living God, using these holy vessels from the temple. The temple that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, they use the word father and grandfather interchangeably, had taken from the temple of the living God in Jerusalem, and they had gone out of their way then to blaspheme the living God as well as to praise the idols of gold and silver. And he was doing this, no doubt, because he thought he would get away with it, at least a little while longer. Isn't that the way sin works? You think you can get away with it a little while longer? Isn't that the way unbelief works? You think that now is not the time necessarily. There's always going to be another day, another week, another year perhaps to make up your mind regarding the Lord. But the story of this is that that's not always the case. God is very merciful and long-suffering with us, but he does not always continue to give us time. And in this case, Belshazzar was, was wrong. He was dead wrong, quite literally. And God himself writes his doom on the wall in these four Aramaic words. Mini, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tikal, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. You know the chapter closes with the haunting words. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. That very night, who would have thought such a thing? But all these things are tremendously helpful to us because in concentrated form we have the most important of lessons. We have a whole life shrunk down to the span of a single life. What if it was you rather than Belshazzar? And what if it were that very night? How would you live what remains of your life? What would be your priorities then if you knew that? Beyond that, in all these things, we see what should not be our priorities. We see all the things that could be had. Because in God's providence, this man was, had every sort of thing that could possibly be wanted by the most ambitious of men. And we see it is worthless. They do nothing for him. They cannot save him. They cannot keep his life going even for another night. Rather, his doom comes upon him. Well, the title of our sermon is that we ought to learn from the writing on the wall. What a tragedy. It was a tragedy enough of his awful end. But what tragedy would be if we didn't learn from these things ourselves? God had written them for his admonition. And for all those who would ever learn of these things that we might know something. What can we learn from the writing on the wall? Because that's what we should do. We should learn from it. Well, I actually have a long list. I make no apologies for it. There are six things that we should learn. The first is that pleasures are fleeting. I'll just give the list. Pleasures are fleeting. Honors are temporary. Idols are worse than useless. Your days are numbered. You are found wanting. And God will not be mocked. Maybe as we go along, the children can listen carefully as I give those. It it is a long list, but we'll... Go from one to the other. So we're trying to learn from the writing on the wall. And the first thing that we might learn is at first, pleasures are fleeting. It says in verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. 
Now this was a grand occasion. He was a grand man. He was essentially the king, although as I say, he was kind of co-regent with his father who was absent. But he was essentially the king. He had vast resources at his disposal. He was comparatively young. If there ever was an opportunity to do as Solomon mentions in Ecclesiastes 2, where he says, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. That was it. He was putting it to the test. Wanted to see, anyone ever wanted to see about mirth? That was it. No, college, no university student could possibly throw a party that was more grand, uh, contained more food and wine and, and song and dance and all the rest of it. It could possibly be imagined the resources thrown at such a lavish party for the greatest empire of the world at that time. There it was. But you know, the test had the same result that Solomon found out. But surely this was also vanity. Because these pleasures turned out to be very fleeting indeed. Was any aspect of that enduring? Let's let's just see how it goes. Because in in verse 6, well, first we hear how he's eating and drinking, how he has all these guests, how he's lifted up in all of his, his pride and his drunkenness. And then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosed and his knees knocked against each other. That's instantaneous. One moment he's living the life. One moment he is deep into pleasures. And the very next moment his knees are knocking in deep fear and anxiety and discomfort. His hips are loosed. No more pleasure from the food. No more pleasure from the music. No more pleasure from the women. No more pleasure from anything. Only this astonishment and deep anxiety that nothing is going to fix. No wine, no medication is going to fix his problem. Now, if such is a way of the pleasures of an oriental king, the greatest of occasions, what is it with other pleasures? What is it with other pleasures? They are fleeting. That's why it's said of Moses in Hebrews 11.25 that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin because that is what they are. They're passing away. They're fleeting. And you could be embroiled in them as deep as you like in one moment. And they're instantaneously gone the next. Pleasures are fleeting. The second thing we ought to learn from this incident is that honors are temporary. Honors are temporary. It says in verse 7, The king spoke, saying to all the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me this interpretation, you see the angst, you see the pain, don't you? He wants something to take it away. This man is used to fixing things. He probably threw this great party to get his mind off the fact there was an occupying army surrounding him, or at least semi-surrounding him. He wants something to undo this anxiety. And he says, If anybody can come tell me, these things. He shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Again, third, because he himself was the second. Well, no greater honor, no greater wealth, no greater power could have been bestowed on anyone in the kingdom. It was a summation of all that the most ambitious civil servant could possibly aspire to, complete with the accoutrements of the purple robe and the gold chain of office there and all of us unbridled things that, that unbridled ambition could possibly desire there it was for the taking. Listen to Daniel's rather off-handed response in verse 17. And Daniel answered and said before the king, 
Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Because by this time, you see, Daniel knows by experience that worldly honors come and they go. He had already been risen up to the very summit of things. In fact, he had been made the second ruler in the kingdom, not the third. And, but unfortunately, he also knows that such honors come and they go. When his benefactor, uh, the, the King Nebuchadnezzar, died, well, we assume that he lost his position. And he remained under some lesser situation in the years intervening. And he knows that they come and go. And furthermore, he knows that the man that is standing before him is not that sometime in the future this man who might raise him up to be the third ruler, that he would die and likewise Daniel would go back to the place that he was. He said he knew that that very night this man was going to die. And what good are the honors that he could possibly do for Daniel? What good is that going to do? He's looking at the face of, as it were, a dead man. Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. But our brethren, beloved, is it not true with everyone with whom we speak to? Is it not just a matter of time? Yes, for him, Daniel knew that in a matter of hours this man would be dead and all the honors that he could bestow would go along with it. But isn't that true, the face of any living man? Whoever could give us any kind of honors, are we not looking into the face of a dead man? And knowing that whatever honors could possibly be bestowed by such a man, that these things will soon be gone. Honors are temporary because people are temporary. And they come and they go. And so it is with their honor. And I'd say this as we're trying to learn lessons from these things. Here's a lesson. As long as there is something that the world can give you that you have to have, or else can take away from you that you cannot give up, then you will eventually sell out. But Daniel, you see, as we find out throughout this book, there are many larger lessons in this book, but one is that Daniel could not be bought. That his great desire at all times was to honor and to glorify God, and nothing would dissuade him from those things. His ambition, you see, was not to have honor now. His great ambition was to have honor in, in eternity. An honor that God alone could give to him. An honor that an undying God, an eternal God, alone can give him that will last an honor that no one could possibly take away. And brothers and sisters, if that is our ambition, then we have a good one. We set our heart on the honor that God alone, the rewards that God alone can bestow upon us in eternity, and that no one can take away. And then we cannot be bought in this world. Honors are temporary. But third, idols are worse than useless. Verse 4, they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Praise these idols, isn't it? And Babylon was full of idols. It was a proverb. It was well known. It was part of the justice of God, by the way, to send his people who had been committing spiritual idolatry with all the idols of nations round about. It was part of the justice of God to send them to the home, to the headquarters of idolatry of the world there in, in Babylon. So established. There are so many idols everywhere until they were sick of these things. And you know what? It really did cure them. Never again do we have the slightest hint that the Jewish people were ever seriously tempted to bow down before the idols of sticks and stones and gold and silver ever again. Babylon had cured it of them. Well, they are these, this um, retinue, this 
this royal group and all of his commanders, they are praising these idols. I don't know what they found to praise them about. I don't know. Because what we know about idols is that they are absolutely useless. As if we needed any further uh, evidence of these things, they could not even save their king that very night. The very one who was giving as much honor as he knew how to these idols, they couldn't do a single thing to save him. They couldn't do anything at all. You know, they'd say, this God created the sea. This God rules over it. This God created the, the, the river, maybe, and rules over it. This God created the heavens and rules over it. None of those things provided any help whatsoever. And what is true is what we already know from Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. And you know what? Even in their very act of pagan revelry and superstition and idolatry, they have been made like the idols. They have, been, they have made, made deaf to the sound of the river being diverted away. And they have been made blind to the sight of the invading army making their way into the city even at that time. They had become exactly like the idols that they worshipped. Rather in verse 23, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, who do not see or hear or know. Just as the psalmist had said, so it was Daniel's observation, and so was their fate. Neither saw nor heard nor knew what was going to happen. The only way they knew, actually, is by means of a divine revelation as God intervenes in that wickedness and God intervenes in that, that horrible pit of iniquity and declares their fate that he had declared, that he had determined for this man and his people. Idols couldn't have told it to them because idols are worse than useless. Fourthly, our days are numbered. We read in verse 26, meaning, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Well, we know that God is the one who determines who reigns and for how long, indeed, for how long the king lives. As Daniel reminds him in verse 23, the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, his days certainly were numbered as the king, and he was about to find that out. But you know, it's not just for kings and kingdoms. And in all these things, we don't say that that Belshazzar was the one man who ever lived for which these truths were true. But rather, we are seeing great contrast and great relief in this room, in this feast, in the writing on the wall, we see things that are true for all men. And it's not just Belshazzar's days and years that were numbered. We're told in Psalm 90, verse 12, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Because we do not live forever. Our time on this earth is all too brief and it passes away. Very, very often in God's words, we are reminded that we pass away like grass that withers. That our days are like a shadow and they, they fly away. At the very, very most, it is 120 years. Very few live to that, very few live to 100. And that is nothing in the grand scope of things. They pass so very quickly. 
And, you know, I'm always told by those older than I that, in fact, the, the years pass faster and faster and faster. I look and I think that time is, is passing quicker now than when I was 20. And those who are 60 say that time continues, in fact, to, to, to fly away faster as time goes on. Well, if that's true, brothers and sisters, we don't have much time left at all. Truly, we must number our days. Well, Balshazar, you see, did not live even until 120 or 100 or even 80 or even 70. He didn't live to any of those ages because none of us are actually guaranteed to live a full natural life anyhow. Even if we were, it's not very long, but we're not guaranteed that. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And young people die unexpectedly all the time. You know, some of the greatest and most fruitful times that Jonathan Edwards had preaching to his young people, to his own children, and to those were when one of their number was suddenly taken from them. Because we're not guaranteed to live another day. God, in whose hands is our breath, He is the one that we have to do and we should number our days because they are numbered whether we know it or not. His his days were numbered before many ever was written on the wall. His his days were numbered. God knew from all eternity that he was going to die that night. It's just that he had no consciousness of these things whatsoever. The only way that you'll profit from it is to be self-consciously aware that your days indeed are numbered. Well, what else do we learn? What else is useful in the writing of the wall? Not only that our days are numbered, but fifthly, we are found wanting. We are found wanting. It says in verse 27, Tico, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now we could easily take this merely in terms of his competence as a king because at no doubt he was manifestly incompetent. Here he was, throwing a party while the city was under siege Surely he was the lesser son of greater fathers. But that's not the basis here. That is not what is being spoken of particularly. In verse 22, here's the explanation of why he's been found so wanting. You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Those things were not hidden from, as I said last time with chapter 4, those events of the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, they were not done in a corner. The whole kingdom, the whole empire knew of these things and surely his own son and grandson knew them. But he didn't do him any good. He was a fool. You've not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your Lord, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. And that is the supreme thing. And all of his charge sheet of all of the list of things that could be brought against him and pointing out why he was found wanting, he has not glorified God. He has lived his life entirely without reference to the God who made him and sustains him. And that truly is wickedness. God is concerned, you see, with us as moral beings, as those who've been made in his image, those who are accountable before him to live their lives in accordance with his word and law. And this 
Belshazzar knew the truth. He knew what he ought to do. He knew he ought to humble himself before the mighty hand of the living God and refuse to. He would not give a single iota of glory to God. And so he was judged. And once again, it is not just Belshazzar. It is all of us. Truly, none of us are kings, nor shall we be. But God is concerned with all of us as moral beings, those who have been created in his image, those to whom are being held accountable to live in accordance with his word and supremely to glorify him. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the chief end of man. And if you're not doing that, you're in the very same position as Belshazzar. And we will be judged, you see. We keep forgetting that's another thing that passes out of memory of wicked men and foolish men is that their days are numbered. They think that they live forever and they just, they don't see that the end is coming. It's like the illustration I used with regard to the conveyor belt to hell that Satan has us all hooked up to. It has no windows, it only has screens and and media from Satan, from hell is being pumped into them so that they might see these things and forget that their days are numbered. Well, the other thing that I think that we forget is that the other side there is judgment. There is a balance. And the balance is in the hands of the perfect judge who will judge us with righteousness. And Romans 3.10 reminds us there is none righteous, no, not one. And Romans 6.23 declares, For the wages of sin is death, and, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Apart from that gift, you see, the wages of sin is death. That is what is, we are found wanting, you see. There's none righteous, no, not one. And as we are weighed, what will we get from it? What is going to happen? Same thing as Belshazzar. Death. Death to the sinner. Those who have not kept the perfect, glorious, holy law of God. You will be found wanting. And that is a lesson we should not forget. But sixthly, God will not be mocked. That's another very, very important lesson to learn here. Inasmuch as men forget that their days are numbered, inasmuch as they forget that they will, there will be a, a judgment and they'll be found wanting, they sometimes forget that God will not be mocked. And that is very much the message of this whole book. By the time we get to this place, we already know that God will not be mocked among his own people in Israel. What happened to them? Why, do these, why are these vessels of gold anyways there in Babylon and not in Jerusalem? Why? Because God will not be mocked. And it is only a matter of time before he executes his fierce judgment. Even against those people who are called by his name. As he did with the nation of Israel. And though they claim the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple will save us, yet that temple was destroyed, and all those vessels were taken, brought to Babylon, and that's why they were there, available for them to use. God will not be mocked. And we have already seen the, 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 uh, the fiery furnace, we've already seen the dream, and all of this aftermath, we've seen already several occasions that God will not be mocked. This man, Belshazzar, did not learn it. He did not listen to what Nebuchadnezzar declared, his, fa- his grandfather declared in Daniel 4.1, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multitude, multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. 
How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now listen to the end of the verse. Now I, this is verse 37, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his way is justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Do you see? God is not mocked. Those who lift themselves up in pride against the living God, he is able to bring down. And this lesson, the book of Daniel, will not let us forget. God will not be mocked. Yes, he is long-suffering. And sometimes he does not immediately execute the judgment against wicked men and their pride. And that does not mean it remains that way forever. God is in no particular hurry, you see. He is eternal. And sometimes wicked men mistake the fact that there is a stay of execution for another day, that the day of salvation remains, the opportunity for the repentance. They mistake this for leniency. They mistake this for softness. But it is not that. And God has and he shall demonstrate, certainly and finally, once and for all in the day of judgment, that he will not be mocked. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. It's one of the great lessons. I'm reminded in a favorite parenting book of mine, it reminds us that one of the things that we must teach our children is indeed that we reap that which we sow. And this lesson, you see, has no exceptions. It was true for Belshazzar, It will be, in various ways, true for each and every one of us. We will reap what we'll sow. Why? Because God is not mocked. Well, those are the six lessons that we should learn from the writing on the wall. Now, in some sense, we've already applied these things in various ways, but I I just ask a, a question for one thing, I guess. I'd ask the question, what is the difference between you and Belshazzar? In some way, you say everything is a difference. He's an oriental ancient king. I I can barely conceive of the sort of life that he lived. And I live now in this place, in the United Kingdom in the 21st century. What do I have in, in common with him? Well, beyond those superficial things, actually, I think that we are very much in the same condition because our human condition never changes. It is always the same. The only difference for him, if there is anything, is that the handwriting was briefly appeared on a wall. Whereas for us, the handwriting is before us in our scripture that we have with us night and day for us to read. And those words have not lost their power. They have not lost their meaning. Meany, meany, tickle, or farson, they are there before you. They have not lost anyone. And, and rather, instead, these things are only grown in their significance as we have the whole New Testament. We know everything that God has for us to know for our salvation. His days were numbered, and so are yours. He, as he was in himself, was found wanting, and so we all shall be. Not one of us could possibly stand before the living God and expect to be justified. His opportunity was fleeting, and so is ours. And one thing that we should matter, one thing that I hope is a difference between us and Belshazzar is that we should learn the one thing that matters is our soul. He and his many different 
priorities, you see, had forgotten that one thing that matters. And here's where I think that we should remind ourselves of that reality, the, the story of another, another story that we have in Scripture, that of the parable of the rich man in Luke 12. Because when I read that sentence that very night, he died, it sort of reminds me of something I've read somewhere else in Luke 12. We'll come to it soon enough in the morning series. It says in Luke 12, 15, And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, What? Fool. Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. He didn't know that very night he would stand before the living God. That very night he would stand before the living God and he would be judged and he would be found wanting. Oh, what can we do? What can we give in exchange for our soul? The Lord did not say, what will you give me that I might let you into heaven? The Lord did not say, I see now you have been very wise in storing up all these things. You have your worldly ambitions. You decided that you were going to have a great storehouse of things for many years. Sort of like Belshazzar, right? And laying up all the store for 20 years in Babylon. But in neither case would it do the slightest of good. God is not asking for such things. God is asking that we might repent and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's asking that we might glorify him in our life. Rather than glorifying ourselves and building up such a storehouse to our destruction. The only thing that matters is our soul. And then also I would say that we should learn to number our days. That is what Psalm 90 verse 12 tells us. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And that is what we must do. Teach us to number our days because it doesn't come naturally to us. The default setting of the human heart is that we'll just carry on. And in as much as it is possible, this everything, the world, the flesh, and the devil all conspire to keep our minds away from the idea that we'll ever die. And even if our thoughts ever turn to these things, the worldly culture is such that even these things do not move us In the way that we think about death, we do not think the way that we ought to. We should number our days. Why? That we might gain a heart of wisdom. You see, the wise man understands things in the course of eternity. The wise man always has that infinity sign in his equation as he considers whether he should do this or whether he should do that. Whether he should throw himself into this pursuit or the other. Whether he should follow God or follow Baal whether he should glorify God or glorify himself and all of these things. He has this infinity symbol in the right hand of his equation, I suppose, and understands how does this look in eternity? How does this look in eternity? And then what does he have on the other side, the wise man? He doesn't have an infinity when it comes to his own days because he knows rather that his days are very much numbered. 
And there's a very realistic figure there that reminds us that we may not live forever. This is what brings us to wisdom, because in this we live in quorum Deo. We live in the sight of God, as we understand we do not have forever. So teach us to number our days. I think this is an important lesson as well in all these things. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, there are many things to be learned in that feasting chamber, this great grand palace of Babylon, of this King Belshazzar. And there are many things to be learned, particularly in the words that were written, the words you wrote on the wall. Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would learn from these things and be wise. That, Lord, we would not have the heart of foolishness and pride and idolatry of this wicked king. But rather, Lord, that truly we would learn to number our days. Truly, Lord, we would do the thing that he did not do, which is to glorify you. We would know that all the pleasures of this world are fleeting. All the honors are temporary. That idols are worse and useless. And that we ourselves will soon enough be weighed in the balance of judgment day. And in ourselves, Lord, we know there is no good thing and we will be found wanting. But, O oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would grant us the wisdom, the heavenly wisdom from above, that we might put our faith in you. And that having put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we should live in the sight of God, living every day in some sense as if it were our last, that we might bring glory to you, and that we not be overly moved by the vicissitudes of this world, that we cannot and would never be bought, but, Lord, living in the assurance, the perfect assurance of an eternal God, and that truly you are the rewarder of those who have put their faith in you. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.